0: Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon, I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation. The goal of the Sounds True Foundation is to provide access and eliminate financial barriers to transformational education and resources, such as teachings and trainings on mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion. If you'd like to learn more and join with us in our efforts, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Terry Reel. Terry is an internationally recognized family therapist and the best-selling author of I Don't Want to Talk About It overcoming the secret legacy of male depression, along with a book called The New Rules of Marriage and a brand new book, Us, getting past you and me to build a more loving relationship. With Sounds True, Terry's the author of a highly acclaimed and loved, I hear so much positive feedback from so many people about this series. It's called Fierce Intimacy, standing up to one another with love. I absolutely love talking with Terry Reel. I'll tell you why. He gets me off my, I know I'm right in this relationship position, and instead to a place of, you know, I'm going to figure out what works for us. Here's my conversation with Terry Reel. Terry, I'm so happy to have this chance to be with you and to talk about your new book, Us, a New York Times bestseller. I'm excited. All right. Okay, so right here at the beginning, you're known as the relationship turnaround guy. How did you come in your career, in your work, to that role and to really focus on
1: relationships in general as a practitioner? You know, it's it's kind of interesting actually. Uh, Back in the 90s, uh, I published a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It um, about male depression. It was the first book ever about male depression. Uh, Until that time, uh, depression was seen as primarily a woman's disease, just like alcoholism had been seen as a man's disease. And I'm proud of my role in bringing that to the fore. There are an estimated 6 million depressed people in America, so the book did really well. And I began getting calls uh, from not just America, but really around the world saying, uh, is there somebody uh, who does this kind of work in uh, Topeka or L.A. or, you know, wherever? And the calls, of course, were primarily from women. Uh, it's women who bought my book. I say, that, I don't want to talk about it, it appeared under pillows all over, <laughs> all over the States. Uh, And these were uh, couples in trouble, and I would refer them to a therapist as best I could. But after a while, the light bulb went off, and I said, look, uh, if you're uh, crazy enough and you have the resources, come to Boston, where I work, uh, and be with me. And what evolved was a two-day intervention. I called it a relationship intervention. Me and the couple, two days straight, face-to-face, at the end of those two days, you're either on track or getting a divorce. This was the last stop, and uh, I I learned two things. Uh, one, uh, I had a remarkable uh, track record. Uh, we're now just doing outcome studies. It's not formal, but I, I honestly I'd say 19 out of 20 couples were pulled off the ledge. They were, They weren't. They all went home with a treatment program. You go to AA. You go to get some medication, you do uh, meditation, you do this, that. Uh, but it, most of them uh, were spared uh, divorce. And these are people that no therapist have been able to, six, seven, eight, or 10 therapists is my record But nobody's been able to help. The second thing I noticed about these relational interventions uh, is that I broke just about every rule I'd learned in couples therapy school. Hmm. Um Uh, And I'll tell you what makes the, the, so I'd already been teaching family therapy at that point. And rather than have a big shame attack and figure, oh my God, I must be doing something wrong. I said, oh, I seem to be doing something right. I invited the great, uh, a a friend at that point, the great feminist psychologist, Carol Gilligan, uh, assembled a group Behind the One-Way Mirror, we did a five-year uh, research project, uh, and this was sociologists, anthropologists, uh, educators, therapists of different stripe. I would meet with a couple on the brink of divorce for two hours in front of the mirror. Then Carol and the team would come out from behind the mirror, and one by one, they would each talk about what they just saw me do from their perspective, anthropology, sociology, whatever. And it was really out of these conversations that my method, relational life therapy, was created. Uh, and, um, you know, we break a lot of rules. We, uh, if I may, uh, we, Please. we take sides. Uh, when I was a, a couples therapist, the cardinal rule was, that if you took sides, particularly if you sided with the woman against the man, You had to go to your supervisor and talk about your mother for a while. You you lost your Mm -hmm. neutrality. Uh, But not all problems are 50-50. You know, I I, I remember sitting with a couple. uh, He was an untreated, unmedicated, alcoholic rager. uh, And her quote-unquote contribution, as far as I could see, is that she was there. You know, this was the feminist critique of family therapy, talking to an abused spouse about their contribution to the system is grotesque. So uh, in RLT, relational life therapy, we're perfectly capable of uh, saying, uh, uh, Mrs. Jones, uh, you're a nut, and Mr. Jones, you're an even bigger nut, and and here's why. (laughs) So we take sides. We tell the truth. Uh, we deal not just with shame. I think is one of our great contributions. We deal not just with shame, but also with grandiosity. Uh, for 50- yeah, and
0: and this is something, Terry. I really want to talk to you about because in your new book, Us, you go into quite a bit of detail about grandiosity and relationships and the roots of grandiosity in our individual lives and the culture. So yeah. let's take some time together
1: on this. Okay. Uh, anyway, so. I began teaching this method, and uh, now we have a training program. If I can put it, come to my website, relationallife.com. We have a beautiful two year uh, certification program, and we're training thousands of therapists around the world. So it's very exciting.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about grandiosity. Why and how did you start tracking it and help us understand it in ourselves and in our relationships and in the culture? The big question here, but I think it's really important.
1: Um, per, I was raised uh, by a loving, depressed, angry, violent father. I write about it. And I um, In fact, uh, I I, I believe I I became a psychotherapist in order to get the skills I needed to talk to my tortured father and find out what the hell happened to him Mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't become him. And um, I was just writing a piece for a newspaper. Uh, I am the son of a depressed, angry man. He was the son of a depressed, angry man. I have two resplendent boys, 32, 35. They do not say that, and their children will not say that. And that is the greatest accomplishment of my life. Mm -hmm. I have been the recipient of uh, male grandiosity and male abuse of power. And I internalized that. I was a rager early on in my life. I also internalized it as depression and shame. I attack myself, as so many of us do. One of my insights, uh, one day I figured out that the energy of shame, which we've been focused on as a field for 50 years, helping people come up from the one down, the energy of shame and the energy of grandiosity, superiority, are not different. It's the same energy in two different directions, and uh, the emotion is contempt. Uh, I, I ask people to think of it like a flashlight. When the flashlight of contempt beams out on you, oh, I can't believe that Tammy, she's such an idiot. Blah blah blah. We call that grandiosity. When the flashlight beams on me, I can't believe it. Can even be the same exact words. What an idiot I am. We call that shame. But it's exactly the same energy. And what I figured out. And began working on, first in my own life and marriage, and then with my clients and students, is how to live a contempt-free life, nonviolent. Uh, it, it, this is way before nonviolent communication, but it's akin. Nonviolent between you and others and nonviolent between your ears. So, as you know, in the book, I talk about coming out from under the great lie. And uh, the great lie is that a human being can be essentially superior or inferior to another human being. We are equal. We are same as. We all have the same inherent worth. We all have the same value. It can't be added. It can't be subtracted from. It's an existential or spiritual fact. And our culture runs on the lie of superiority and inferiority. It absolutely infuses our day-to-day life, minute to minute, uh, every day that we we live.
0: Let me ask you a question, Terry, because as you're speaking, I'm scanning for if I want to live a contempt-free life, Mm -hmm. where would I notice contempt? How would I notice it coming up in the course of, of my day, of my life. And I don't think I think about contempt really as, as one of the, you know, I think about like uh, envy maybe or tearing someone down, but I don't name that contempt is underneath it. So how could I do a contempt scan on my life?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would ask our, 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 our viewers to literally, I have an exercise where I, at the end of the day you, you, you do a self-esteem journal and you note when you were one up and when you were one down. And uh, what the physical sensation is, that's, the, that's the, the marker. Like I have the same, we all have the same physical sensation. Like when I go down, my dad used to swap me over the back of the head. And when I go down, my shoulders go up. I don't know that anybody sees it, but it, my body feels like, I'm protecting my head and I'm looking up. Like When I go up, I, I literally look down my nose at people. Uh, the thing is, this is every. I'll tell you a story. Uh, so, uh, this is how I illustrate it. Back when my kids were little, I'm at a PTO uh, dinner, and this guy comes up to me. And the first thing I know, I haven't seen him, and the first thing I notice is he's really fit, he's really good looking. And you know I'm always struggling with a little pot belly, and uh, so I look at this incredibly fit guy. And, uh, I go down into shame. I feel old and fat. Oh God! And I'm one down. I'm inferior. Uh, and then I think to myself, well, uh, yeah, this guy looks great. He's a gym rat. He's a trust fund kid. His he comes from money. And uh, he's never had to work a day in his life. So he can be at the gym. Me, I'm a self-made man. Every, and mm, I'm one up. And while I'm one up, looking down my nose at him, I notice I, I still have more hair than he does. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like glorying in that. And then I think, yeah, son of a gun is rich. I'm not rich. How come I'm not rich? Why can't I be rich? So-and-so is rich. A lot of people I know are what, rich. <clears throat> and I go down One up, one down, one up, one down. Inferiority, superiority, until I take a breath and I say to myself, uh, you know, you haven't listened to a thing this guy's been saying. Why don't you pay attention to what's in front of you? And then I bring myself down into even. The, The beauty of this is once you start to get aware of when you're up and when you're down, you can intervene. You don't have to stay that way you you can bring you can uh, take a breath and reach up and literally bring yourself back into your body, looking at your eyes, even same as. Bring yourself up from that one down, uh, back into even and same as. And this is a muscle that can be uh, that can be cultivated.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things you write as a motto, if you will, it's a generalization of relational life therapy that I thought was very powerful is I invite the weak to rise and stand up and the mighty to melt. And I wonder if you can make that real for us, because as you're talking in terms of working with a couple, how that there's the down, there's the up. And you're having the mighty melt and the weak rise in a dynamic, a couple dynamic.
1: It has to do with the skill of how to take on the mighty. Uh, We empower, not not all couples have this asymmetrical power dynamic, but many do. And when we do see an asymmetrical power dynamic, one's grandiose, one's shame-based. Uh, one, one is more the, agree, we call it the blatant and the latent. One is more blatantly egregious, and the other is more like a, an enabler. Our first move is to empower the enabler to stand up. And then we use that as leverage to go after the grandiose one. You know, as psychotherapists, we're taught to be nice to everybody. And God forbid you confront anybody. We're taught form an alliance uh, with a difficult client. And then maybe after a year or two, you can confront. In RLT, we form the alliance by dealing with difficult truths right out of the starting gate. We call it joining through the truth. But it takes skill. And what I do is I reach for the decent person uh, uh, underneath the grandiosity I hope we get into it I reach for the wise adult part of the person uh, rather than the adaptive child part which is the grandiose part that they've been living through it sounds like this Bill you're a nice person Bill who's been a philanderer and a cheater and a liar for 20 years you're, you're a nice person you're a good person I can feel it sitting with you. I have been with people who are indecent to the bone. They're called sociopaths. And they're cold. They're but you're warm. We're connected. I, I like being with you. You know what's so sad? I am talking to a decent man who's behaved indecently for the last 20 years. Will you let me rescue the real you from this crap that you've been involved with? who says no to that? And they don't. They don't say no. So you have to reach through uh, the grandiose part of the person to the living core, the wise adult part of them. That I've never met an in indecent person to the bone. There's always a decent person in there. And it's my job to, in some ways, bypass their adaptation, the grandiose, difficult part of and form an alliance with the beating heart of who they really are and say, come on, brother, let's go. Let's get, let's get on the, on the journey. But it helps if the disempowered one has some oomph, like uh, Mm -hmm. grandiosity impairs judgment. Uh, The more grandiose you are, the less empathic you are, and the less you have, uh, a realistic assessment of negative consequences. So as an RLT therapist, I hold the mirror of negative consequences up to you. If you don't play ball with me, if you keep going the way you're going, these are the negative things that's going to happen to you and your family. And if you do change, these are the positive rewards that await you. And partly it's the partner. You're going to lose your partner, or you're going to be in a miserable marriage. A lot of times, I go for the kids. What kind of uh, what kind of father were you? What kind of father do you want to be? What's the legacy that you want to pass on to your kids? Will you let me help you be a better person uh, than the people you grew up with? Uh, so it's really about. Mm-hmm. You know, healthy self-esteem means being able to feel bad about your bad behavior. That's, that's a good thing. If you don't, you're shameless. You're associated with that Proportionally bad about you, but still hold yourself in warm regard. You're a flawed person who behaved badly. You feel remorse and guilt about the bad behavior. You learn from it. You make repair. But you pick yourself. You don't go into self-attack. This is like healthy self-esteem and action. As an RLT therapist, I'm holding the person in warm regard and casting a very cool eye on their bad behavior or even some of their bad character traits. Look, this isn't the best mm-hmm. of you. Let's let's wake up the best of you and bring that to the surface.
0: When you see the mighty melt, what does that look like? Oh, what does the melting
1: beautiful. look like? It looks like remorse. It looks like an open heartedness. I, I talk about bringing the person out of cold outer space into connection. And it really is like waking up. You turned, the, the person turns to their partner, uh, often crying, and says, um, I can't believe how stupid I've been. I'm so sorry. I can't believe the way I treated you. I'm so sorry. And also, by the way, this is about taking sides. When we take on the difficult, grandiose partner, uh, uh, just because you're latent doesn't mean that you're pleasant. You can be pretty angry. Uh, late. You know, late. A lot of uh, uh, women in particular uh, who try and get, I have a saying, an angry woman is generally a woman who doesn't feel heard. And uh, I will say to, and they haven't been heard, and they've dragged their, you know, their, in this case, we'll say, their guy uh, to, uh, you know, six, seven therapists who no one's ever taken them on. And when they see me take on the difficult partner, man, woman, non-binary, whatever, the usual response is they cry. I say to them, you cannot get through to this person, but I can. You have not been heard by this person, but you've been heard today by me. Let me take them on. I'll do a better job of it than you. You can relax. You can begin to enjoy them again. I've heard everything you said about them, and you're right. They are difficult and blah, 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 I'm gonna take care of it. And when we actually support the disempowered one, and, and let them feel that help is on the way. The whole system completely transforms.
0: Now, I can imagine uh, someone saying, you know, God, I'm going to go see a relational life therapist because finally, because I'm right, they're going to take my side. Thank goodness someone's finally going to take my side. And then they go in, they see the therapist, and guess what? The therapist says, actually, you're the one who's part of the problem. And then that wouldn't that person say, guess what? I'm out of here. I'm out of here. But you said, no, you're joining with the truth. Somehow, somehow they feel... Uh, like they're going to stay and work this out. What do you do so they don't
1: say, I'm out of here. You picked the wrong side. Um, it, 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 first of all, ultimately, we don't give a damn about who's right and who's wrong. We, we only care about what's going to work between the two of you. And, and ultimately, it does even out. You know, it, um, the, the latent issues come to the fore the minute the blatant starts giving him or her what she wants. Uh, then the intimacy issues for the other one uh, come comes right out. So it's not a question of uh, you're always right. You're always wrong. Uh, It's just that it's not always 50-50 and the blatant one has to go first. If you're yelling and screaming and throwing plates and stuff, you know, don't don't come complaining to me about your partner not being close to you. Uh, I, I will help. Him or her get close to you, you have to stop throwing plates. You go first is the mantra that we often often use. And then I promise you, uh, I I will help, we'll say her, uh, warm up. And if she doesn't, I'm going to be just as firm with her as I'm being with you right now. But you have to go first because no one would warm up to you the way you're behaving. And there's a way of just talking sense to people. I mean, people aren't stupid. You know, you say to somebody, um, I I know that you're upset that she isn't sexual and she isn't close to you. uh, But look, whether you agree or not, she feels that you're volatile, you're angry, you're demeaning, you're controlling, or conversely, you're shut down, you withdraw, you're, you're unaccountable. Uh, uh, How am I supposed to help you while you're behaving like, let me clean up your act, and then I promise you uh, uh, I'll get to the other one. I give you my my word, but let's do it in stages, because you know what's going to happen if you don't do this. I'm really worried about what's going to happen to the two of you. That's the negative consequence. And also remember, your children are watching. Uh, you're repeating what you grew up with. Is that what you want to inflict on your kids? So it's this—you know Mnuchin used to talk about stroke kick. It's uh, it's positive, pulling them out with a little fear of uh, doom and gloom if they don't. And you play, you you play. Look, uh, it, we call it joining through the truth. Any fool can clobber somebody with the truth. I have a two-year training program. You have to learn how to do this, but it's a titrated dance of positive and negative, of you know. But it all boils down to. Somebody said to me once, "Can can I boil down relational life therapy in two sentences?" I said, "Yeah, you want to hear my summary, Tammy?" Please, of course. Are you kidding me? I'm a Cliff Notes kind of person a uh, here's, uh, here's the, the whole of RLT in two sentences. Oh, you don't want to do that, do you? You want to do this? That's it. That's the whole summary. <laughs> it's about uh, motivating somebody to step up uh, and do better for themselves and for their family.
0: I've heard you say, uh, Terry, that there's no place for harshness, that it doesn't work, it's not effective, that it causes damage. And I, I, how do you help people who say, yeah, I hear you, but they still find themselves and you know, when they get upset, they say harsh and mean things and then they regret it? How do we get to a place where we're actually not bringing meanness,
1: harshness into our relationships? And also in our relationship to ourselves. Uh, We're very harsh with ourselves as well. The exact quote is, there's nothing that harshness does that loving firmness doesn't do better. And um, the key is this. When I'm sitting with a couple, uh, my first question is not, what are the stressors? A good couple can handle stress. And it's not even, what's the choreography? What's the, you know, the more, we'll we'll do it straight, the more she pursues, the more he distances, the more he distances, the more she pursues. Uh, That's important, but not the most important. The most important is this, which part of you am I speaking to? Which part of you am I speaking to? And as you know, I go into this in great detail in the book. Am I speaking to the prefrontal cortex? The most mature part of the brain, present-based, here and now, non-triggered, the mature part of you that can make decisions, or am I speaking to a triggered part of you, trauma-based, either the wounded child part, which is the recipient of the trauma, uh, flooded, young, overwhelmed, or am I speaking to what I call the adaptive child part of you? The adaptive child part of you is that you, that you created as a kid to cope with what was ever going on. And it's a kid's version of an adult. And almost all of the people I see have lived most of their lives out of the adaptive child part, thinking that that's a wise adult. And it's not. When we get triggered, the autonomic nervous system scans the body four times a second. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? If the answer is yes, I'm safe, we stay seated in the prefrontal cortex. If the answer is no, I'm in danger, boom, we're flooded. We move into subcortical, automatic knee-jerk responses. We, we do exactly what we learned to do as kids. We bring that into our relationships over and over again, it's repetitive, it's compulsive, and it gets the same result every time. And the essence of the book and my work is what I call relational mindfulness. How in those triggered moments to take a breath, take a walk, I'm a big fan of breaks, get re-centered in the part of you that can remember love. Remember that the person you're speaking to is someone you care about, and the reason why you're talking is to make things better. That's the first skill. Now, if you stay in the adaptive child, you won't use any other skill. It, do, it doesn't want to. The first skill is remembering that you want to make peace or whatever. You want to thrash things out with your partner to begin with. Get centered there. And then you can come into the, into the fray. That's where... The hope, can I give you a story, a, a illustrate one? Of course, of course, yeah. Here's a, this is the story I'm using these days. True story, it's one of the first stories in the book. Couple on the brink of divorce, the guy's a chronic liar, lies about everything, and his wife is going to leave him. So, and he's the kind of guy, other therapists know this guy. You say to him, the sky's blue, he goes, well, it's aquamarine. You know, he's not going to give it to you, right? He's got like a black belt in evasion, so we talk about the adaptive child dysfunctional stance—the thing you do over and over again. His adaptive stance I can figure out in five minutes is evasion. He's got a black belt in evasion, so I think relationally, I say something that if you're thinking individualistically, you would never occur, but relationally, it's a. It, what was that adaptive child adapting to? So I say to him, who tried to control you growing up? His father. Military man, how he sat, what clothes he wore, what friends he had, courses he took, everything. How did you deal with this controlling father? He looks at me and he smiles. That's important. That smile is the force of resistance. He looks at me and he smiles and he goes, I lied. Brilliant. I always teach my students. Be respectful of the exquisite intelligence of the adaptive child. You did exactly what you needed to do back then to preserve your integrity and your wholeness. Good for you. Smart boy. Great, great adaptation. But I have a saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. You're not that little boy. Your wife is not your father. So that's it. They come back two weeks later, it's absolutely true, hand in hand, all smiles, we're done. Okay, there's a story, tell me the story. Over the weekend, she sent him to a grocery store to buy, say, 12 things. True to form, he comes back with 11. She says, where's the pumpernickel? He says, every muscle and nerve in my body was screaming to say they were out of it. And I thought of you, Terry, I took a breath, I looked my wife in the eye, and I said to her, I forgot. And she, true story, burst into tears. And she said, I've been waiting for this moment for 25 years. That's a moment of grace. That's a moment of recovery. Coming out of the adaptive child part of you, out of the knee-jerk response, taking a breath, and reaching for something uh, more mature and more relational. Uh, that's that's what this is all about
0: Mm -hmm. now terry the person who's investigating inside hmm what's my adaptive child stance what is it how could you help them do that investigation to know
1: well here's a quick generic fight flight freeze or fix uh fight I'm a fighter. My wife's a fighter. We both grew up in violent homes. Screw me, screw you. Punch, punch. We're boom, 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 Flee. You can be sitting uh, six inches in front of somebody and still fleeing. That's called stonewalling. Uh, if, uh, freeze is just freeze. Uh, I actually think of freezing as frozen flight. Uh, but fix is an interesting one. Uh, the um, uh, the trauma people have now added uh, that in the, in nature, it's fawning. Fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And a fix is, oh, my God, oh, my God, you're, you're unhappy. I'll, I'll twist myself up into knots to take your unhappy. And, you know, any tension in the room, I've got to get rid of. It's not a mature working on the relationship. It's a compulsive, anxious, I'm going to take your pain away because I'm too distressed. Fight, flight, freeze. Or fix uh, those of you who are listening to us. Take a moment and out yourself, uh, Tammy. You can pass, but I'm a fighter. What are you?
0: Oh God. Uh, I, I mean, as you're as you're saying that, I I do have a combination of those uh, reactions in in different. Uh, but I I do like to fix things a lot. Uh, you know.
1: Yeah. But What I ask people to think of is uh, the answer to that question in your current intimate sexual relationship now, not your kids, not your colleagues, not 10 years ago, but but these days, when you're not in a state of recovery. Now, I understand that you, Tammy, and people listening are in their wise adult 364 days out of the year, but that one little day uh, when you're uh, reactive. Re- right. reactive. I,
0: okay, I'm a fighter. Then I would ah. say that's that's that would be pretty natural for me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So everybody listening can do that uh, for yourself and for your partner. And by the way, that'll tell you something about the dynamic between the two. Mm-hmm. But it gets much more nuanced. than, than
0: right. You know, and than, so in in this response to loving firmness, the question here can do more than harshness in terms of being effective, in terms of being a practical approach. When we're being harsh or mean, where that's coming out of our adaptive child, that's what Absolutely. you're saying. And when that's- we're centered in our wise adult, we can find a way to say hard things, but in a firm and loving way. And you talk about this, you, you have this great phrase, soft power. Uh, Tell me more about soft power. Maybe give some examples of it. It's so important, Terry.
1: Yeah, I think it really is critical. Um, Let me go back for a moment and talk about individualism and patriarchy, the social Sure, sure. And the book is really a critique of individualism, what I call the toxic culture of individualism. Individualism teaches us that we stand apart from nature. That's what the word individual means. Uh, And that fuses with patriarchy, which I've been writing about for 30 years, which teaches us not only are we apart from nature, but we're above nature. We dominate nature. We control it. Whether this control is our partner, you better stop doing that. Our kids, our our bodies, I got to lose 10 pounds, our our thinking, I got to be less negative. And... um, I'm proud of the book in that I start with neurobiology, I move on to personal relationships, and then I fade out to issues like racism, homophobia, sexism, uh, and our relationship to nature itself. Uh, The biggest picture, look, I don't think it's overblown to say, if we don't realize what I call ecological wisdom, we're not above it. We're in it we're breathing it if we don't trade in the hubris of power and control for the humility of cooperation and collaboration we're in bad shape as a species this is big Uh, we're in bad shape as a democracy Uh, but the same paradigm of power and control is what kills us uh, not just as a planet but in our living rooms and bedrooms so that adaptive child, you know, is about you goddamn do it or else. Uh, or the conversely, don't talk to me. I'm shutting down. Leave me the hell alone. Either of those extreme. Under patriarchy, you can either be connected or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. Let me say that again. It's a big point. Under patriarchy, which is the water we're all swimming in. You can either be affiliative, quote-unquote feminine, uh, accommodating, or you can be powerful, quote-unquote masculine, assertive. But power is power over, not power with. So when you step into power, you lose connection. Uh, and and you, I see that. I see that with uh, with disempowered uh, people, men and women, particularly women, move into what I call individual empowerment. I was weak, now I'm strong, go screw yourself, you know, I I found my voice, stand back. And uh, individual therapists, the 12-step sponsors, uh, feminist groups, spiritual people will applaud that. Relational empowerment is, I was weak, now I'm strong, I'm going to stand toe-to-toe with you, I'm going to have full voice, let me tell you what I want from you. Now, what can I do for you to help you deliver that for me? We're a team. How are we going to work together on that? Who sounds like that? No one. It's new. It's new for our culture. Soft power is the art of standing up for yourself and cherishing your partner in the relationship in the same breath. And I have to teach people how to do it. For example, simple. The difference between saying, Tammy, don't talk to me like that, which is fair enough. And saying, Tammy, I want to hear what you have to say, sweetheart. Could you tone it down so I could hear it? There's a difference between saying, "Um, God damn it, I need to talk to you. And saying, honey, this isn't working. We've got to sit down. And we're a team. You know, the relational answer to the question, who's right and who's wrong, is who cares? What matters is how are we as a team going to work this out in a way that's going to work for both of us? Not a combination. It's not that I subsume my needs into yours, but how are we going to work? Let, let me give you an example. This, this is classic uh, heterosexual <laughs> dynamic. Uh, I'll just do it straight up. Uh, uh, You're a reckless driver, says she. No, I'm aggressive. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly competent. Then they get into what I call an objectivity battle. Objective reality has no place in personal relationship. Uh, you're a bad driver. You, you 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 go 20 miles above the speed limit. You tailgate. You switch lanes. No, I'm an aggressive. I've never gotten to take. They start arguing their case. Let's shift that to this. Honey, I know you love me. I know you want me to feel good. Call me crazy, call me a nervous Nelly, whatever. When I get in the car with you and you tailgate and you drive 20 miles above the, and you switch lane, I get myself terrified. And the whole time I'm driving with you, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, we're gonna cry. Now, you're a sweet guy. You don't want me to be feeling like that. As a favor to me, when I'm in the car, Could you please drive more conservatively? And he says, I've seen it. Uh, Yeah. And what might have been a 40-year argument is settled in 10 minutes because they stopped thinking like individuals and they started thinking like a team. And that's the art, how to remember that the two of you are a team. And this has to work for both of us. If one of you wins and the other one loses, you both lose. The loser will make the winner pay for it. You're an ecosystem. And when you stop thinking like an individual and you start thinking like an ecosystem, which includes your own wants and needs, uh, then everything changes. And uh, all of the tools uh, change. There are a lot of concrete tools in, in in the book, but they're very different than the ones we think of in the culture at law. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I want to uh, learn more about that, uh, the art of soft power. We think like an ecosystem, but what are some of the other ways, tips you can help me when I'm in a situation and I want to speak in this kind mean, of, so the example you gave,
1: Terry, was so genius. Well, here's one, uh, this is an absolutely true story. So, uh, 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 um, uh, 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 a young uh, uh, straight couple, she uh, wants sex none of the time, he wants sex all the time, and they're killing each other. Uh, like any good therapist, I get them off the level of a, a position I want, I don't, I want, I want to, to what sex means to the two of them. And like a lot of men, unfortunately, uh, in our culture, this guy filtered almost all of his emotional needs through sex. And sex meant that she loved him, they were okay together, and, you know, it was uh, he, she, it was okay. She, we surfaced this. It's true story. Two weeks later, they come back. We've got the sex thing figured out. They had other issues, but okay, what happened? About three days after the session, true to form, he wants sex and she doesn't. Rather than going across to the other side of the room, which is what she used to do, she reaches over and she gives her, her guy a big kiss. She looks him in the eye. It's actually true story. And she says to him, Look, the first thing I want you to know is that I think you are so hot. You're really handsome. I love your forearms. You're a good guy. I feel really close to you. I think you're a wonderful husband. Oh, by the way, I don't want to have sex. Anyway, I think you're a wonderful husband. I think that you... And he looks at her to his amazement, and he goes, "Uh, okay. And she was so cherishing of him while she was saying the no, that the medicine just went down. And as I say, you have to learn, I go into it in detail in the book, but... You learn to cherish your partner, and stand up for yourself in the same. You know, uh, sweetheart, I want to be close to you. It's all. It's often good to name your intention. I want to be close to you. When you just call me a chauvinist asshole, that kind of pushed me the other side <laughs> of the room. Would you say something reparative so I can feel close to you again? It's subjective. It's from the I, not objective reality. This is what you should do. It's humble. Uh, I want to be close to you. This would help me. Would you help me out? We're a team. Uh, It's invitation works a lot better than complaint.
0: Now, Tara, you mentioned that you and your uh, wife Belinda are both fighters have you come up with like, here are our rules for, you know, good fighting, fair fighting, or are you just like, look, when we're fighting, we're not in our wise adults. We're not going to do it. We're just going to take a break and come back.
1: Uh, Which way do you go? I go the second way these days. I mean, we all know, we have a rule. I mean, we're both couples therapists. We know it's a rule, you know, you know, character assassin. Uh, One of the rules, if you're going to fight, uh, since we're on it, let me say. It. Uh, the key thing is to remember repair. Uh, you know, we therapists have encouraged this. Uh, self-expression is not the be-all and end-all of the universe. This, that's nonsense. <laughs> it's, a lot, it, it's a lot. But I, I have a saying. You can express yourself or you can work towards solution, but you can't do both at the same time. What's more important to you? Uh, So, you know, take a few senses and get it off your chest, but then move into what could your partner do that would make you feel better? We forget about repair. We're just these individuals. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to. No, 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 no. This hurt me. Uh, Here are a couple of tips. Change the affect. Whatever the feeling is that you're used to, go for the other ones first. So if you're used to big puffed up, I'm, a, I'm mad as hell and find your vulnerability. That hurt my feelings, honey. If you're used to little, oh, I don't want to frighten them, find your power. You know, that really annoyed the hell out of me. But change whatever the affect is to, uh, to the opposite, to the underlying and you'll change the dynamic between the two. Don't lead with what you're used to, lead with what you're not used to. Here's another tip, stay particular Not you always, you never, two weeks ago. It's this one thing that you did uh, that I didn't like. I'm staying there. Don't go into trend and don't go into character. And then three is offer your partner an avenue of repair. This is what you could say or do right now that would help me feel better. So often we just say what they did wrong. We don't even tell them what right would look like. It's just like it's ridiculous. But these days with me and Belinda, to be honest, 37 years, we go. One or the other says, let's take a break. See you in 30 minutes. You have to say when you're coming back. We go and cool off. Come back in 30 minutes. And it could be either of us. And honestly, except for very rare moments, it sounds like this. Uh I don't want to fight. You want to fight? I don't really want to fight. Let's get out. What What, what do you need, And Belinda will go. Well, you really were a jerk about blah blah. You, you know you're. Uh, uh, um, you're right. I'm sorry. And she'll go. Okay. What do you need? And, and I go. Well, blah 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 blah. She'll go. Okay. Well, blah blah. So give me two out of the four. And I have to accept that. I'll let go of the other two. It's good enough. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. You did. That, all right. Yeah, I'm sorry. All right. good. They want some tea? And we're done. And this is what I teach the people I work with. What I'm thinking in that moment when I say, I don't want to fight. You want to fight? Is this. this. Is what everybody should be thinking. How do I want to spend my evening? That's what I'm thinking. Do I want to spend my evening fighting with this person? Or would I rather cuddle on the couch and watch a cool movie on TV? Like, it's my life. What's more important to me? Proving that I'm right, nailing her into the ground, or making peace and getting on with it? Now, look, there are moments when you should have a fight. You know, uh, yeah, important. which which
0: brings up the, a point that I wanted you to speak to because uh, you write we're not going for unbroken harmony. And here, you and your wife, you're both therapists. You're you're telling me what it's like when you fight after 37 years. And I do think I've internalized this idea that unbroken harmony is the goal or something like that at a certain point in evolution, you and your, you know what I mean? Like, They're yeah, well, no, that should be how it is because we know so much. And then it's a failure that we fought, even if we're doing what you're describing, which is, you know, basically having decent repair relatively soon after I still feel like I failed. But what you're saying is no unbroken harmony is not actually even the goal. So speak to that.
1: Harmony, disharmony and repair. Closeness, disruption, and a return to closeness. This is the essential rhythm of relationship. I learned that from Ed Tronick, who was an infant observational researcher looking at mothers and infants. You know, the infant is like molded, and then there's gas or hunger, and then the infant freaks out, and the mother freaks out, and everybody's freaking out, anger, anger, uh, and then they're past, and they're back to molded. Ed said, this is, this is the essential rhythm of all relationships. And in our culture, uh, we don't teach people how to get from disharmony back into repair because we don't acknowledge that disharmony is, is shameful. You know, a relationship should be all harmony, just like a, a great body is a 20-year-old body and great sex life is a 19-year-old. It's really ridiculous. Um, disharmony hurts. Disharmony is raw. I, uh, I've gone around the country... Around the world, really, for 30 years, talking about normal marital hatred, and I want you to know that not once has somebody come backstage and said, "What do you mean by that?" Uh, it's not—it's okay, and we get into relational shame, just like a, Like a, a great relationship never fights. You know, the the couple to the left and to the right of us is having better sex and fewer fights than we are. You no. Know. We're human. It's exactly our imperfections and how we manage these imperfections that is the character of our intimacy. That that is the the guts of what we're doing. It's okay. And there are parts of us that are going to be uh, uh, really annoyed or hurt or frightened. Look, another one of my sayings is we all marry our unfinished business. Uh, Falling in love uh, it, it is the, the delusion that this person is going to complete us and heal us. Uh, a real marriage or long-term relationship uh, it is the realization that this person is exquisitely designed to dredge up every unhealed wound we've ever had. We re-injure each other. We re-traumatize each other. We pick partners who are going to do that to us.
0: But Terry, just to to push on this a little bit, uh, you know, if we're both in our wise adult self more and more of the time, do you think that disharmony perhaps happens not that often? Or no, it's like, come on, it's like, you know, it's just part of the cycle. It's just how it goes. Or, you know, actually it becomes kind of rare. Or do you think you need disharmony or you're moving into some sort of flat artificial place where you're not really encountering?
1: The issues. I think harmony I think harmony becomes your baseline. Harmony becomes where you live and the disharmony becomes the uh the islands in the stream. Whereas when you start off it's the other way around. Disharmony is where you live and it's just like healthy self-esteem it's all in recovery it's the same for all of it. You know, you start off shame shame grandiosity shame shame health. Health health shame shame grandiosity and then as you start to do recovery work, it's like grandiosity, wait a minute, uh, let's stop that. Okay, <laughs> okay. okay let's come up from that. So that as you do your work over time, health becomes the baseline and these become the exceptions. And it's the same thing with harmony, disharmony, and repair. You repair quicker, it doesn't spike as much, it doesn't go on as long. But it's always there, and you know. Also, you don't sweat the small stuff. The the small disharmonies can happen a dozen times during the course of one dinner conversation, Uh, but you're not going to make a big deal out of it. Yeah, you just. Go.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now there's something I really want to ask you about because you talked about the idea of we're honoring the ecological system of our relationship. And at the same time, you get to have individual needs. You you do. I I I, yes, I'm part of this system, but I'd like to speak from the I for a moment. So my question to you, and, and I don't I really don't want this to be abstract and theoretical, it's it's actually very personal and real for me, which is how do I not fall into some kind of fusion because I'm so focused on the ecology of the relationship that I've brought myself into less of my own needs. And, you know, I've just kind of like, well, I'm just going to kind of tamper myself down and go for the whole, how do I get to be my full self and have a a
1: beautiful ecosystem? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I got to tell you, uh, you know, broad generalization, and I own it as a broad generalization, but this is a woman speaking. You know, women's socialization is all about assuming the I and over-accommodating to the whole. So that ain't what I'm preaching, and I want to be really clear about that. Uh, the great Carol Gilligan used to say, uh, there is no uh, uh, voice without relationship, and there's no relationship without voice. Uh, and I recorded an audiobook for you, Tammy, called "Fierce Intimacy." I want intimacy to be ferocious. Yeah. Stand up for yourself, but do it skillfully. So this isn't about accommodation. But uh, one of the things I would say is don't forego your wants and needs, quote unquote, for the sake of the relationship. That ain't doing the relationship any favors. That's that you've been brainwashed. It is not, the relationship needs a vibrant I. That's part of the relationship. And a a tip off is resentment. If it really is okay with you, then it's okay with you. But if there's even a shred of, uh, I'm saying yes, but I really mean no. You go back in the ring and you say no. You stand up for yourself. So uh, if you want to accept it, Accept it, but if you're really honest with yourself and your needs are getting in the back seat and you're not feeling really fulfilled, be straight with yourself about it and go back and duke it out. It's for the sake of the relationship. It's not selfish. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely
0: imagining that person who's like, okay, I've I can tell I'm resentful about this, that, or the other thing. I'm gonna to try to use these soft power skills that I'm starting to learn. I'm gonna name it for the relationship. And now we're having a good moment of disharmony. We're we're in the ring. We're having this uh, disharmony. Uh, you, you, you jokingly said that if you were to write a memoir about your relational life with Belinda, you'd call it a fight worth having. And I thought that's so yeah. good, like these are fights worth Having, and I wonder if you, you know, can
1: speak to that—that that notion. You know, I ask people to ask themselves, "What is this going to cost me?" Uh, it, 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 if your wife it, it says, uh, "You know, I really don't like the way you just spoke to me. Could you please apologize and and say it nicer?" And he, he didn't think it was that bad. What's it cost you to be a nice person and say, oh, "I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to." It not cost you anything but your pride. But uh, if if she wants you to uh, move to uh, Timbuktu and you want to stay where you are, uh, that may be a fight worth having because that's really going to cost you. So that's a litmus. Ask two things. Am I going to resent it if I give in or can I really accept it? And what is this going to cost me? And, And if it's going to cost me, then duke it out. But... So often, if you really ask yourself, what is this going to cost me, the answer is nothing. uh, Being right, uh, my pride, uh, I can be generous. I speak to people about being emotionally generous to each other. If it's not going to cost you anything, then uh, go the extra mile and be generous to your partner. If it is going to cost you something, then open up your throat and speak. We talk about moving into vulnerability, but for people in general, and a lot of women in particular, it's more vulnerable to stand up and be assertive. That's more scary uh, than opening. So whatever it is, I want the mighty to melt. I want the weak to stand up. Whatever is outside of your comfort zone, just try and remember it's in the service of the authentic relationship. It's not selfish. Mm -hmm. if you do it in a relational way.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, Terry, one final point here as we end. I noticed when you were talking about contempt-free living and what it would be like if I saw myself above someone to come back and be at eye level and recognize our sort of shared oneness, if you will, our shared humanity, just our shared essence or if if I'm down towards myself, no. And I I thought this is really a heart practice, a heart way of living, a a heart-based, a heart opening way of being. And I wonder if you can speak to that specifically about the transformation at the level of the heart. If you see it that way, maybe you don't, I don't know. What's happening in our hearts as we uh, practice us and eco versus ego centered living?
1: Oh, that's beautiful, Tammy. Well, our hearts are opening, is what's happening. Uh, the bottom line here is love. It's about living love. It's about you know, particularly standing up to harshness, as an example. Uh, learning to be more loving to yourself and to the people around you. Look, it's called relational life therapy. The relational. It's about teaching people how to live authentic, loving relationships connection to yourself and others but it's also about enlightened self-interest and one of the things i teach is that when you bring yourself down from grandiosity you do it for your sake you don't do it for the son of a gun who may desert but I, if i may tell you know i like to tell a story so uh, i i'm a new yorker i've moved i've been in boston 40 years and boston has the most awful drivers in the country in New York, somebody'll cut you off and speed up, you know, they're 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 a pig, but whatever. In Boston, they'll cut you off and then they'll pass it aggressively, slow down, stick their fanny in your face and make you drive twenty miles an hour. So I got one of these people, and I'm doing that laser Star Wars thing of, you know, like laser beam blowing up that fat little head in the wind. And I stopped for a minute. And I and this is literally what I say to myself. I grew up in a contempt-drenched family. I internalized that contempt as shame and depression for decades. I played out that contempt in uh, control and criticism in my relationships and made a mess of them. This person may deserve somebody pulling up next to them and screaming at them, which I would have done as a younger man. But I deserve to not be that person as I bring myself back into connection and centeredness and peace, it's not for them, it's for me. I wanna live a more loving life. And it's in my interest to breathe myself down from them. You can be right or you can be happy, what's more important to you. Now this is about the personal practice of happiness and it's detached from outcome. Your partner is going to be in her adaptive child. Count on it. There are going to be moments when you're not going to be able to get through to them. I call that micro-disappointment. The trick is keeping it micro. You, you can't badger your way through that. You have to let go. But if your partner is in the, her adaptive child and you stay in your wise adult and don't jump in the mud pit with them, uh, that's not a great day for her. It's not a great day for the relationship, but it's a wonderful day for you. I call this relational integrity. You work on your practice, and it is a spiritual practice. You work on your practice of integrity and skill and harmony and, uh, and centeredness. Uh, and uh, it so happens uh, that's the best strategy for improving the relationship, but it, that doesn't matter. Is the best strategy for living beautifully between your ears. That's what you're about.
0: I've been speaking with Terry Reel. He's the author of the new book, Us Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. And with Sounds True, an audio series called Fierce Intimacy. Uh, Terry, I always love talking to you. I learned so much from you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tammy. I feel uh, very met. Whenever we speak, you're you're a, you're a big soul uh, human being, and, and I feel the breath of your connection. So I appreciate that.
0: Sounds true. Waking up the world. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at resources.soundstrue.com backslash podcast. That's dot soundstrue.com slash podcast. If you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I absolutely love getting your feedback and being connected. Sounds True, waking up the world.